Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, August 1st at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And we welcome to our table Caitlin Owens of Axios. Thank you for joining our little group. Thanks for having me. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, if you have questions you'd like us to answer, our next Ask Us Anything is coming up in a couple of weeks. Tell us what you'd like us to answer at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Okay, it is officially August. How did that happen? And we have so much news. So let's start with the Democratic presidential candidate debates in Detroit Tuesday and Wednesday. Health got plenty of airtime, but I'm not sure anything that was said helped advance the key part of the Democrats' debate, whether to build on the Affordable Care Act or start over with a new health program from scratch. I think my biggest takeaway is you can't debate health with 10 people on the stage being given 30 seconds each. What did each of you guys take away? Alice, you're shaking your head. Well, absolutely. It was um, the debate format does not lend itself to actually understanding any of these candidates' plans and how they're different. And I think mostly we just saw on display the ongoing divide in the party between progressives and moderates on both nights and a lot of anxiety about how Medicare for all will play with voters and making the argument, the progressives making the argument that it'll really fire people up, that people are ready for this. You know, some of those lines got a lot of cheers from the crowd. And then you consistently had the moderates sort of throwing cold water on that and issuing warnings that going all in on single payer will lose Democrats the election. Um, We've heard all that before. So it was just sort of on display in prime time. But we did not get into the details of really anything besides how to expand coverage. There are so many other health policy topics that we could have gotten into, and More we, particularly it just the, got overshadowed. The health policy topics that won Democrats the House back in 2018. Absolutely. Pre-existing condition protections and drug prices, which did come up sort of tangentially. Sort of, but not in a question from the moderators, yeah. I don't think. Caitlin, what, what did you yeah. take away? You know, I think the questions were just kind of designed to get Democrats to fight. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they and did a good job. They did a good job. I guess the debate format, to be fair, it's lend to good politics and, you know, who's going to appeal to voters the most. And there's this emotional side to it. But that's what we saw is the emotional side to duking out a public option versus single payer medical Medicare for all. And, you know, what talking points can you make in this 30 second response to boost your poll numbers and get voters to be on your side? Um, which leads to a disingenuous policy debate or, you know, that's kind of at best. It works like there is no policy debate. Mm -hmm. Something that was really striking to me is, you know, yes, this was a shallow discussion about the merits of these two plans, but it's also kind of funny what gets left out. You know, and we're talking about 
you know, how much we're paying for health care, who's going to pay for it, how much we're going to pay in taxes. But I think one thing that really struck me is just who the boogeymen are, where it's insurance companies and drug companies. And like Alice said, we didn't get into drug prices specifically. It was all transgental. Um, but it's kind of funny when, you know, our, our costs are it's it's not just insurance. It's not just drug prices. It's, it's hospitals. hospitals. <laughs> exactly. It's providers. But just it's like, not as good a look to rail right. against your doctors. On right. TV. Right. Or so, your largest employer and mm-hmm. most members of Congress's district, which are hospitals. Right. Right. And it's, you know, I can't I think one of my coverage, I wrote this, but you can't say that hospitals had a great night just because like the fact that Democrats are discussing this expansion of government run healthcare is not it's a it's a lose for hospitals and providers just in it, in and of itself but no they're not name checked we're not having a real discussion about what's actually driving these healthcare costs that we're talking about changing the insurance system to address so i was you know as i think most healthcare people are I was kind of just wanting a lot more <laughs> kimberly was i mean what could they have asked that would have like advanced this debate What was interesting was there were certain points throughout the debate in which you had individual candidates say, wait a minute, let's stop fighting with each other, you guys. We need to keep the eye on the prize. Let's make sure that we're um, really pushing against what the Trump administration is proposing. But then you immediately saw kind of the candidates go back and revert to the arguments that we were just talking about. And even yesterday on Capitol Hill, um, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer was just trying to say, well, we all agree on the universal health care part, guys. We just have some differences on how to get there. The Trump administration wants to take health care away. That's kind of how they're trying to, you know, show a bit of unity, even though they are very much divided. I mean, Republicans a few years ago were very united on the idea of repeal and replace. The differences on how to get there ultimately killed their ability to move forward. So the differences in the ability to build a coalition around what you're trying to present are really important. Um, Having said that, we do know that the American public cares a lot about what their personal paying for health care. And the more that candidates talk about that, um, you know, the more that's going to resonate with voters. People know that when they go to the pharmacy, they're spending way more than they want to be spending on drugs. They know that they go to the hospital and weeks later, months later, they might receive an, a massive medical bill. Um, and they know that the system is really complicated and um, that every year they're just paying more and more. So addressing some of those factors and really tying it into the consumer experience um, wasn't really something that we saw last night. I feel like the really big debate is sort of between idealism and pragmatism, that the idealism of the, you know, Medicare for all, let's get rid of the the insurance companies that are ripping us off to the tune of $23 billion um, a year. And, you know, versus because that will excite the base you know it's right. all it's, it's a primary there's 23 people running for president you know you got to get people on your side versus sort of the more pragmatist you know faction led by Joe Biden and you know with Michael Bennett and Amy Klobuchar and uh, John Delaney and you know all the people who are who are afraid that the idealism of Medicare for all is going to scare off enough people that it's going to actually play into the Republicans hands and then of course you have the Medicare for all people saying to the moderates, no, you're using the Republicans' talking points. I just, was I don't so know whether it's frustrating. Bizarre. Well, they were both accusing each other of that, and you know that was so frustrating because those aren't necessarily Republican talking points. Those are just arguments for and against certain policies, and that's the point of a primary. The point of a primary is I think my plan is better than your plan, and I have to make the case why. And every time someone tried to do that, they got accused of you know helping Trump or and sometimes yeah. the talking points are true. 
Yeah. I felt a little bit like Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot by accusing each other of siding with Republicans because, mm-hmm. I mean, that takes away this clear dividing line on health care that mm-hmm. the parties have, which is like the fact of the matter is the Trump administration is literally arguing in court to kill the ACA. And they didn't explain that in the debate. They, right. they said, oh, Republicans are the real enemies, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't go into exactly what they meant by that. Right. Which just, you know, when you look at polling, that's a very unpopular position mm-hmm. among the American public. It's a very it's one that voters are very scared of. By trying to one-up one another, I think that Democrats as a whole are really – they're hurting themselves and the, the party in the in the long run, I think, um, unless they really are able to sort through how to have a debate about their own health care ideas on the merits versus just like clumping their opponents in with Republicans. Like it's, it's, it's not the same. Their positions are not the same. Building on the ACA is not the same as getting rid of it. And there and there was a lot of, I mean, I saw a number of people on Twitter last night saying, you know, the problem with everybody sort of piling on Biden um, and then, you know, piling on Bernie Sanders is that if you end up doing damage to, you know, you end up with a candidate who, yes, is now battle hardened, but also potentially damaged. Right. Um, and this is always what happens when, you know, that when one party is defending its president and the other party has a zillion people trying to, you know, climb that mountain to become the one remaining opponent. Um, and we, we've seen this, we've seen this many, many times. Right. Well, and I feel like voters could end up confused, right? Like, if you are a Democrat, I'm very, I'm pretty confident that most Democrat wants health care to be a distinctive issue between Republicans. That's what won them the House in 2018. Once we get into a general, like, yes, they're going to want that distinction made. But if the waters are already muddy, it's kind of, it's pretty hard to unmuddy waters. And I think that's what's so appealing about Medicare for All is that as sort of a top line, it is very simple and very compelling. Mm -hmm. Everyone's covered for every service, no matter who you are, blah, 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 blah. Um, You know, there's obviously a lot of real criticisms you could make, but at least that's something people can Can understand understand rather, you know, than, you know, Biden's plan or or Kamala's plan and the the phase in and who's covered under what piece of it and what part's private, what part's public. That's really complicated. Which is exactly what I was about to ask about, um, because uh, before the debates, which seems now like weeks ago, uh, (laughs) Kamala Harris, who is a co-sponsor of Senator Sanders' Medicare for All bill, but who's been a bit confused, shall we say, about where she stands on private insurance and whether it should continue to exist, unveiled what her team calls a compromise between the public option supporters and the pure Medicare for all or bust crowd. Uh, And of course, she got hammered from both sides. Um, So who who wants to explain the difference between Harris's plan and sort of the the other sides? Sure, I will. Well, essentially, under a Kamala Harris vision for healthcare, you would have one of two options for your health insurance coverage. You would have a Medicare-like plan. And I say Medicare-like because it actually would cover a lot more services than the current Medicare plan. Or you could choose Medicare Advantage, which is um, a contract that the government makes with private plans to administer health insurance. So it's something that we have now. It would just be a lot broader. It would cover a lot more services. Um, It would include things like vision, hearing aids, um, pretty much everything. But um, Harris had had kind of confused um, her message on health care early on because at first she said she wanted to abolish private health insurance. Then she said, uh, well, we'll have supplemental insurance. And so what she's offering now isn't supplemental insurance because the coverage would really cover a lot of medical services. She's left out basically um, health care if you're traveling abroad. or um, Which Medicare doesn't cover. Right, exactly. Or, or she's left out um, cosmetic surgery, which is similar to then the Sanders plan. So she's kind of weaved in uh, 
um, two separate proposals. And she's getting hit by the Bernie Sanders crowd who says, hang on, Medicare Advantage is very lucrative for private health insurers. I thought we were going to take on the health insurance companies. So that's kind of, you know, she's being hit by that side. And then she's being hit um, by the Biden crowd who's saying, you know, you're trying to have it both ways. She would eventually get rid of employer-provided insurance, which is kind of the argument, what that question is intended. Mm -hmm. The question is intended to be, if you have insurance from your employer, will you have to give that up? And under her plan, you would. I mean, you could still have private insurance, but you'd have to go out and get it yourself. I thought that's where she was the clearest and strongest, um, because she took that accusation of you would take away people's employer coverage, and she turned it into a positive. She made an argument for that, saying, well, why should your insurance be tied to your job? People lose their jobs. They change jobs all the time. Sometimes your employer, without your consent, changes which health insurer they use, and you get a worse plan. I mean, I think we've all experienced some form of that. And so she, I I thought where she was muddled on other aspects of it, she was very clear on making the case that your health coverage should not be tied to your employment. So... Which is a really important piece of the debate right. to have. I mean, it was it was it's been it's been had a number of times. And it was but, it was a core argument for the Affordable Care Act, where if you like your plan, you can keep it, but if you lose your job or something else happens, you can go into the individual market. Something just to note: my colleague Sam Baker has reported on how you know private insurance. We are not the only country with private insurance, but what is unique about us and our insurance system is how it is tied to employment. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, I think that Harris did lay out some arguments for why that is not a good idea. But a lot of people, you know, we're seeing polling after polling. People really like their insur- their employer insurance plans. Um, so maybe maybe it's something that, like, if you talk about it enough, people really think about it. They say, why is this a thing? Like, why am I locked into a plan unless I change jobs and I don't know what I'm going to get, right? Like maybe this is a good conversation to be having, but as of now, it's also a risky one to be having given how much people like their employer insurance. Yes, well, and I remind for the millionth time that most people don't use their insurance very much in any particular year, that the vast majority of health expenses are incurred by the top 5% of sickest people, which is lucky for the under other 95% and you have insurance because eventually you will be among those 5%. But if you don't use your insurance very much and you know you have it, you're more likely to like it. Or if you use your insurance, you know, just for routine things, mm-hmm. you're more likely to like it. Plus, and we boy, do we know this, people are scared of change. Right. And that was why the Affordable Care Act was written the way it was. Uh, and it, and it, it is, I mean, it, yes, it's a very good question. Why on earth is our health insurance tied to our jobs? But it's good to at least have the debate but, about whether we want to keep it that way. Right. And But I think that another thing we haven't mentioned actually here is most people don't use their insurance, but also employers pay the vast majority of the premium for that insurance. So so most of us who get insurance are inoculated, which is most Americans, are inoculated from the cost of our health care coverage. Um, you know, we if we when I broke my foot, I had to pay my deductible and pay some co-pays. And I actually, you know, I interacted with the system that way. But for the most part, like health care is not something I think about. Right. So I think that that is something to be talking about. Like, how would that change under something like Harris Care or Medicare for all? Um you know, are people still and part of the answer is that it would just be much more comprehensive than current Medicare is. But that is a conversation to be having because, as I said, most people do not come face to face with the cost of their health care. 
That's right. All right. Well, let's talk about the Republicans a little bit. Uh, the Trump administration is trying to counter program against the Democratic debates. So we had a lot of news this week out of the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, first, drug imports. The administration is apparently going to use a little notice provision from the 2003 Medicare prescription drug bill to allow pilot projects that would let state and local governments and some pharmacies buy cheaper drugs from Canada, so-called drug reimportation. This issue has consumed a ridiculous amount of my health reporting career dating back to the late 1990s. I have an entire file cabinet full of notes from this. Uh, is something really going to happen this time or is this just another way to grab a headline or two but not really lower anybody's drug costs? There's a lot less than what meets the eye. Um, it's it's a pilot project. It could take a long time to actually get approved and happen. Um, so it's not like uh, cheaper drugs from Canada are going to be flooding the markets immediately. <laughs> Also, Canada doesn't really have enough drugs to provide right. the entire U.S. market. Well, and like, let's zoom out here. I mean, I don't think importation is an actual policy idea, is ever meant to supply everyone with drugs, right? Like, it's supposed to be a limited idea. And what it does is it says, okay, we're not going to address the price of drugs in our own country. We're just going to piggyback on other countries' prices that have been willing to address the price of drugs. Um, so it's just really this kind of backwards way of getting lower drug prices. And and yet it's been bipartisanly right. popular for years. Right. And I think, um, you know, and the big one that people are going to Canada for right now, insulin, it's not even included in this first pathway that right. the administration laid out. So, you know, it might be a good talking point. We're going to import cheaper drugs from Canada. But when you really think about it, A, it's probably not going to have that much of an impact if it ever goes in, into effect. And B, it's a really convoluted way of addressing our own pricing problem. Although it seems that everything else the administration has tried has been shot down. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the coming weeks, I think we're going to see a lot more of these kind of headlines from the Trump administration. He's trying to, you know, position himself as someone who cares a lot about healthcare, who's taking action. Um, drug prices are one of his, you know, big obsessions, we understand. And so the um, so, you know, we're going to start seeing him talking more about, you know, reductions in opioid overdose deaths. We're going to start seeing um, them talk more about um, this big uh, kidney initiative um, for organ donations and things like that. So uh, they're going to be putting out a lot more plans that kind of aim to position Trump for 2020 as someone who who is, you know, addressing specific health care So he can actually point to something since he didn't get to repeal the Affordable Care Act, right. although we'll see with this court suit that they're supporting. I mean, with well, he didn't he didn't roll out a plan for what to do if that happens. That's right. Well, they're, they're <laughs> apparently, from what we hear, the administration is still working on a new health plan. It's just we well, keep hearing that. We'll, we'll he believe it every, when we see it. <laughs> he keeps saying every yeah. two weeks, yes. every two weeks. So. Every two weeks he says, we'll see it in two weeks. Right. What they're doing is they're leaning on the Heritage Foundation, with which is working with like 100 other conservatives on this health care choices proposal. And, you know, they haven't agreed that they're going to take it on. But I spoke to Heritage recently and they're sort of, you know, updating their previous version of of the of the proposal and they're hoping that Republicans on the Hill are going to go along with it, but apparently there's a lot of PTSD over. Yeah, I've um, been hearing this for this. about a year. Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. think any, that aside. Yes. <laughs> you know, that aside, I think though it is worth talking about and I you know, we are talking about what the administration is doing, but it is worth pointing out like yes, it's a good political argument to say, hey, look, we're taking on costs. But also some of the stuff they're doing is actually really interesting. And it's surprising that like any administration is doing it, let alone a Republican one. You know, the kidney executive order, for example, like it was no one criticized that. No one had anything bad to say about it. And it 
you know. And it did some important and things. And it did some important things. You might say it's low-hanging fruit, but it's low-hanging fruit that no one else has done. Right. Um, so it is meaningful things. It's not just political talking points. And it's interesting that in the midst of everything else, we're peeling in place. And uh, there is substantial policies coming I know. out of it, here. It's so hard. It would be very hard, I think, to be Alex Azar right now, the Secretary <laughs> right, of Health and Human right. Services, on the one hand, doing things because mm-hmm. he likes to do things. Right. And on the other hand, saying, yeah, we think the entire Affordable Care Act should go away. And half the things we're doing are based on authorities on in the Affordable right, Care absolutely. Act. Absolutely. And a lot of what the White House is pushing goes against some Republican orthodoxy and mm-hmm. and is, you know, regulating the private market in ways that a lot of Republicans are not comfortable with at all. And it's interesting to see there's sort of just quiet grumbling so far, not really willing to outright oppose what the White House is up to, maybe because, um, you know, it's kind of modest and uh, slow, slow moving and not, you know, taking drastic steps right away. All right. Well, one more thing that the uh, Trump administration did this week um, is release regulations governing the price transparency initiative that the president called for earlier this summer. Under the proposed rules, hospitals would have to provide searchable lists of not just the prices that they charge, but of the rates negotiated with insurers. So in theory, patients could figure out how much care will cost and shop accordingly but not necessarily, right? Well, and just, you know, like uh, piggybacking on what we were just saying, this is a big deal. And also, piggybacking back on our debate conversation, this is a big deal for hospitals in that they hate it. <laughs> so, you know, this is like a big thing to happen. Um, but yes, the debate is whether it actually lowers prices. Um, and I think, and sh- whether, it will, whether it will be in, no matter how hard they try to make it usable, whether they can actually make it usable. Usable, right, right. Um, you know, the nuances of all that decide. I think to me, the big picture is it's unclear how how effective this will be, but it is significant in that we will have these prices. It's nuggets of information and whether or not that the information itself leads to enhanced competition that drives prices down. I mean, that is valuable information for the future if just knowing the discrepancy between who pays what. And that is an invaluable tool for policymakers at the future if they do decide to wade further into any kind of regulation. And unlike some of these other things, this actually is part of Republican orthodoxy. Right. They've been yes. talking about yeah. if they want health care to be more market-based, then you're going to have to know how much things cost right. for the market's going to work. But as we've discussed before, there's only a narrow slice of health care that you can even shop for at all. So um, there's the question of will they create a database that a regular person could even understand because the price of services depends on what kind of insurance you have, where you live, all these factors. Um, So, you know, they could slap a price on it, but what that actually means for what you pay could vary. But even with that, if you get hit by a bus, you're not shopping. (laughs) You're just going for whatever you need. (laughs) And I did think the 300 services that are supposedly shoppable, where they bundle the entire cost of the service together, that seems potentially useful. Unless you have a, and you're in a market with a hospital monopoly in which it's less useful, and there are a lot of those, there are a lot of those. But that seems like you know an interesting way of kind of addressing at least the shoppable part of it, and the the accusation that okay, well, your band aid costs this much money, your knee replacement costs this much money, your room costs this much money. Like, how are you supposed to add up all these costs? You know, so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. The hospital industry's opposition to it 
makes it seem like maybe it will have an impact <laughs> because <laughs> if they don't want folks to have easy access to just how much they're charging, that says something. <laughs> yeah. And insurers are opposed to this, too. And I mean, the argument they're kind of making is, I mean, we all know that you can have, you know, several hospitals in a town and what they charge for the exact same procedure could be like five times more, or five mm-hmm. times less. And so they're saying kind of, well, if these prices are out there, what's to stop us from being like, hey, you're paying this hospital, this much more, I want that rate too. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how they're saying, you know, you might see the reverse effect of prices going up. I'm sure this is going to end up in court um, and in things that have already gone to court. As we predicted last week, federal district court judge in Washington, D.C. had struck down New Hampshire's proposed work requirements for Medicaid recipients. Uh, Judge James Boesberg, who previously nixed similar requirements for Kentucky and Arkansas, wrote, and I quote, we have all seen this movie before. Um, At some point, is the administration going to stop approving these work requirement waivers or are states going to stop asking for them? Or is this fight just going to kind of continue to, to, to click along? Well, they, they haven't approved any recently, so maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think that part of the issue is that the, the same judge has struck down mm-hmm. all three. They're going to get appealed. And I think that everyone's kind of waiting to see, OK, does a different judge have a different opinion? You know, where is this going to go from here? It's a little hard to say that work requirements are dead based on this one judge and looking at these three cases, you know, obviously there's a lot of reasons why they might just be dead, you know, the legal (laughs) argument there, but we just don't know yet. What was interesting about New Hampshire is that they had actually started their work requirement program and then it wasn't going well. People weren't logging their hours. Uh, I think 18,000 were set to use, lose. uh, That was Arkansas. Was that New Hampshire too? New Hampshire. Also the same number. Right. Right. um, But that was even in such a narrow period of time Mm -hmm. just because they hadn't really communicated well what people were supposed to do and people didn't really know the expectations. Also like Arkansas. (laughs) Right. Right. And so when it came down to it, you know, even though there was this lawsuit going on, the legislature actually passed a bill that not only narrowed the work requirement from 100 hours to 80, but um, said, okay, let's also delay it until September and let's sort of get the information out there more, you know, and, and then we'll get it, you know, up and running again. So um, so operationally, the lawsuit doesn't necessarily have, you know, any impact right now, but it, it does, you know, put off what we were kind of what was going to be kicking off in September. Another thing you didn't hear come up at the debates at all that the administration is doing, and you can at least point to Arkansas, which had the implementation where people were getting kicked off their insurance. Um, And a lot of them haven't gotten it back. Right. So you you would think that Democrats would want to point to that and right. explain what they would do differently. Yes, yeah. well, it's another dog that didn't bark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Democrats, you know, are, are leaning on Medicare so much. But what they're really proposing is much more similar to Medicaid in terms of, you know, the number of services that it would mm-hmm. cover and the fact that you would have no out-of-pocket costs. Right. But, you know, Medicare is just kind of their chosen buzzword, I guess. Yeah, that's true. They really, they, it would be more accurate to call it Medicaid for all. Well, Medicare, everyone loves Medicare, and America mm-hmm. loves the idea of mm-hmm. Medicare. You know, Medicaid is a more controversial idea, so. Yes. All right, well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Alice, why don't you start this week? Sure. I was really interested in a sort of healthcare adjacent story in the New York Times. It's called Need Extra Time on Tests. It Helps to Have Cash uh, by Dana Goldstein and Jugal Patel. It's related to the admissions scandal that we all heard about where parents employed all sorts of cheating methods to get their kids into college. And this is about how 
the rate of kids in wealthy neighborhoods who get approved as having a learning disability and needing to um, have extra time to take their tests, it's just way, way, way higher in wealthy neighborhoods than in poor neighborhoods. And um, a lot of this involves going to these private doctors to evaluate the kids and to designate them as having some sort of learning disability or anxiety or something. And that's often not covered by insurance, almost always not covered by insurance, those kinds of tests. And so that's why you see in these wealthy neighborhoods. And it's challenging because, you know, there's no evidence that (laughs) the wealthy kids actually, you know, have higher rates of, of these things. And the article explains that everyone, no matter what learning ability you have, benefits from extra time. And so um, so it was just this interesting window into this area of private health care um, where you're having this big disparity in how it relates to education. Kimberly. So I picked a project from the San Francisco Chronicle called One Day, One City, No Relief, 24 Hours Inside San Francisco's Homeless Crisis. And it's by uh, Kevin Fagan, as well as dozens of other reporters. Um, and they did a really good job. They really pieced together, um, you know, photos and videos. And they take you through, you know, 24 hours, as is in the title of, you know, um, the different difficulties people face in terms of accessing, you know, addiction services, places to live, medical care, and so forth. So it's it's very, very well done. And if you've been to San Francisco any time recently, you you'll know it's a very visible homeless crisis. Mm-hmm. So. Caitlin. I chose an article in Bloomberg called Drug Makers Alleged Price Fixing Pushed a Needed Pill Out of Reach um, by Ben Elgin. And it was just, it was talking about, so there's this generic case alleging that dozens of generic drug makers colluded to raise prices together. Um, obviously, that's not how generic drugs work. The price is, it's supposed to be cheap for a reason. There's no reason to raise a price. Um, and it gets into this, the, just um, the patient face of an OCD drug, a generic OCD drug that got raised about 12 times. Its price was raised about 12 times the original one. And it just made it out of reach for this patient. Um, The intro is the patient calls her psychiatrist crying. She can't afford it. And then, you know, it gets into their, like, then it's going into the solutions. And this is a generic. This is a generic. This is a generic OCD drug. And it just gets into this story of how, you know, uh, one psychiatrist was looking at calling a vet to see if they could get the vet to prescribe this drug, which is way cheaper, which, you know, wasn't a real solution because that's illegal. (laughs) And then, you know, then it was talking about this patient who, because she couldn't get this drug anymore, her life just kind of spiraled. You know, it's a generic drug that has a huge impact on not just her health, like, but her ability to function, her ability to have a job, go to work, just be healthy, um, because OCD is such a crippling disease. Um, So I just, I thought this was a really good way of putting a face on, you know, this isn't just a lawsuit about price fixing. This isn't just about, like, premiums going up, whatever. Like, this has real impacts on people. It does. Uh, Mine is from the Washington Post. It's called Driven to the End. Olympic cyclist Kelly Catlin could do it all until it all became too much. It's by Kent Babb, uh, who's a sports writer. Um, It's yet another story of a troubled young adult who took her own life, except it's told from the viewpoint of the entire family and paints an achingly sad picture of how genes and environment and family expectations can lead to tragic outcomes. And you're left with plenty of people to blame and no one to blame and the hope that we really, really, really need a better mental health system, mm-hmm. also something that barely came up at the debates. Um, it's really beautifully written, and I recommend it highly. So that is our show for the week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. Our Ask Us Anything show is coming up soon. Let us know what you want us to explain. We are at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. 
At Alice Holstein. At Caitlin N. Owens. At Leonard K. L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.